Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone of the Department of History at Augustana College. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello. It is perhaps the most enduring American historical image carried with us in our heads in pictures dating back to first grade or kindergarten. Men and women in black clothing and strange hats eating turkey with American natives around a large table in the outdoors. It is the original Thanksgiving, as we like to think of it. But where do these pictures come from? Upon what are they based? And how can thinking about Thanksgiving be a way of thinking about historical thinking? With me to discuss Thanksgiving and historical thinking is Robert Tracy McKenzie. Tracy McKenzie is professor and chair of the Department of History at Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois. Prior to coming to Wheaton, he served for 22 years on the faculty of the University of Washington, where he received the university's Distinguished Teaching Award and held the Donald A. Logan Chair of American History. The author of many articles and reviews, he has published two books on the American Civil War, and most recently, a book with InterVarsity Press, The First Thanksgiving, What the Real Story Tells Us About Loving God and Learning from History. Tracy McKenzie, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure, Al. So this is a, a small book, a short book, an enjoyable book, and yet a very complex book. As I see it, there are like three strands that are braided around each other. Uh, we've got, first of all, a history of Thanksgiving. Uh, not just the day itself, but of the people who celebrated it, and then how that memory was received. So we've got a sort of reception history in addition to that, right? That's right. We've got a theological meditation uh, wound around, and well, those are really two strands, um, so wound around those two strands. And then we've got a sort of historiographical meditation. So there's like four strands. Is that <laughs> is that what you were thinking when you, when you set out to write this book? Uh, it was, actually, Al. My... Uh... My hope was to be able to uh, connect with an, an audience outside of the uh, uh, academy uh, and, and help them to think uh, with me about what it means, one, to think historically, what it means to um, think Christianly uh, about the past. Uh, but I thought that the best way to do that was to integrate uh, that inquiry into a, a familiar story, and a story that I think... Uh, fair number of Americans would find is intrinsically uh, interesting. So I was trying, actually, to accomplish a mul uh, multitude of uh, objectives simultaneously. Well, it's and I have to say, it is a, a fabulous little book, and if any atheists, uh, Buddhists, uh, Muslims, or uh, none of the above are uh, worried about getting a book with the theological meditations in it, I, I assure you that it's, it's fairly painless. Um, and you might learn something about um, Tracy's perspective and the perspective of people like him. Um, let's, but we're going to focus on the historiography and I think the um, at least the other three strands of the uh, of this book. Um, first of all, what's Mackenzie's definition of history? Uh, the thing that I stress right off the bat is uh, history isn't the past. That, that's a pretty obvious uh, distinction once we start to think about it, but it's still one that we, we lose all the time, I think, in sort of popular discussions about history. So history is not the past. I just define it as the remembered past. It's, it's our effort to make sense of that kind of awesome, uh, almost infinite uh, expanse uh, of, of the past. Um, I have a quote from C.S. Lewis who likens the past to a roaring cataract, like an enormous waterfall of billions and billions of moments. And I like to tell my students, history is us standing uh, by the rail holding our Dixie cup out, and what we catch of that waterfall is essentially what we call history. Uh, and a great deal of it, of course, is, is lost to us forever. So history always involves human mediation uh, and hu human reception. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's the memory of the past that exists only in the present in that sort of sense, or in the intersection between past and present, if you want to think of it that way. Yet history is not purely memory. Uh, absolutely not, I mean, because we're, what we're talking about uh, is uh, history as memory, nevertheless constrained by uh, history as evidence. So even though a great deal of the past is lost to us, uh, there are these echoes, uh, these shadows that have uh, 
survived uh, in uh, various kinds of historical artifacts. Uh, and the responsible historian, of course, is trying as much as possible uh, to let those kinds of artifacts shape uh, and frame that memory uh, that we're helping to construct. Right. That's um, well. That's very eloquently said. Um, what? Uh, let's turn to. Uh, well, we're, we're expecting that this podcast will be broadcast, or or wherever you call that, uh, the day before Thanksgiving. So let's uh, recap a historical recap, a review of uh, the, who the Pilgrims were, what they believed, and why in the world did they ever end up in Massachusetts? Sure. Uh, so a kind of um, you know pithy, succinct definition of the Pilgrims. I, I would think of them. Uh, first and foremost, as English Puritans, they represent a uh, uh, element within um, Anglicanism or uh, English Protestant uh, Christian belief that uh, believes that the uh, Anglican Church, uh, after the break with uh, the Roman Catholic Church, uh, still has elements that they believe aren't uh, truly scripturally supported. There are aspects of worship, there are aspects of the hierarchy of the Church of England that they believe are not really uh, justified um, directly in Scripture. And so they're seeking to uh, reform that church. Over time, uh, there will be an element within Puritanism that is more extreme that arrives at the conclusion that the Church of England is no true church at all, and that, in fact, it is, in a sense, a kind of compromise with one's uh, faith to worship uh, in that church. Uh, and so this group calls themselves separatists. They separate out from uh, the Anglican Church and begin to form their own congregations. And in doing that, they're actually uh, defying both the established church and also uh, the civil authorities as well, since the Anglican Church is the established church uh, of England. So the pilgrims then are separatists uh, who uh, ultimately will leave England around 1608 uh, because of the possibility, and to some degree, the reality of persecution. They go first to Holland. That's part of the story that in our popular memory we tend to to glide over. They, they go to Holland in 1608, and they're settling in the town of or city of Leiden by about 1609, and they stay there until um, 1620, at which time uh, they end up uh, in, um, in New England. The reasons for coming to New England in 1620 uh, are complicated. Uh, they uh, involve a variety of concerns. We tend to remember their motive primarily in terms of, quote, religious freedom, uh, the pilgrims are, are coming to America for religious freedom, and they certainly would not have characterized their their journey uh, in those terms, primarily because the pilgrim writers that left accounts all uh, pretty much praised the situation in Leiden for the openness, for the religious toleration that they experienced there. Mm -hmm. uh, what uh, probably propels them more than anything else would be a couple of factors. One, it's a very difficult place to make a living. The uh, crafts are more or less closed to people who are not uh, native to the area, uh, and so they're really uh, struggling economically. Secondly, they're concerned that the culture, even though it is religiously tolerant, it may be too permissive. They're, they're concerned that their children are uh, being really adversely affected by the culture. Uh, and so probably those factors, more than any others, are in their minds as they begin to cast around looking for a place to, to relocate, and they're ultimately able to uh, uh, strike a, a deal with a, a corporation that was overseeing the settling of Virginia uh, to get uh, permission to uh, to settle in North America. So is there a, a sense in which they also want to remain English? There, there is a sense, and we have to qualify that uh, carefully. Some of the Pilgrim writers uh, later, uh, actually 10, 20 uh, years after the fact, as they're trying to explain their motivations, are talking about uh, their uh, loyalty to England, their desire to be an outpost of uh, English uh, presence uh, in the Americas. Uh, we also have to remember that it's the English uh, government and the established Church of England that they believed had driven them from, from their homes. Mm -hmm. So they, they might think of themselves as culturally English, and so that's, I think that's the distinction yeah. to make, not so much necessarily a representation or extension of English uh, authority. The... Um... They do not end up in Virginia. Uh, that's, of course, we know. Uh, it's also important to point out that not all of the pilgrims were pilgrims. Correct. And and we tend to use that language, that term, I guess, a little too loosely. I do. I'm guilty of that. Mm -hmm. uh, the pilgrims themselves sometimes made a distinction um, 
between saints. The word pilgrim, by the way, is not a term that they use for no. themselves very much. But they would make a distinction between saints and strangers, between the the uh, members of the of the congregation that had originated in um, North England, relocated to Leiden, and the strangers would have been individuals, uh, m- more often than not, who were. Um, basically hired by a group of investors in London that are helping to finance the Pilgrim Venture. Uh, And these individuals are brought in more for the skills that they would bring, for the labor that they would provide, not because necessarily they shared an affinity with the Pilgrim's uh, religious vision or or values. So they are divided, uh, and they're a pretty disparate lot in that respect uh, from the get-go. They arrive, um, well, they do not, um, uh, long story short, they do not arrive in uh, Virginia. They were supposed to end up in the northern part of Virginia, apparently New Jersey or New York, correct? Yes, right. uh, The Hudson River is pretty much the northern boundary of the Virginia claim, and they were going to be just south of that, I think. Okay. Um, So we could imagine New Jersey as the first um, Thanksgiving place as a... (laughs) As a as a Jerseyman myself, I'm I'm not averse to that idea, uh, but it would be certainly a very different history of New Jersey, that's for sure. Um, th- they end up at Cape Cod. Uh, they find their way to Plymouth, uh, what will become Plymouth, Plymouth Bay. Um, they bef- prior to that, they've signed the Mayflower Compact. You say a few things about that. What is the Mayflower Compact, and what is it not? That's that's a great question. The the Mayflower Mayflower Compact is a an agreement that the um, uh, adult males uh, who are passengers of the Mayflower uh, are going to uh, put their signatures to shortly before they go ashore uh, in um, late 1620. Um, effectively, what they are saying is that they're agreeing to sort of form themselves as a as a body politic uh, that they're going to um, submit themselves to the uh, the basically to the to governance of the of the group. Um, what to make of that is the issue. And, and one of the ways that the Mayflower Compact has been remembered is, is an effective, effectively sort of a precursor to the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. In fact, uh, some would almost put it as part of that trilogy of great founding, founding documents, uh, one of the first uh, sort of uh, written agreements to self-government. And uh, I think there's an argument to, to be made uh, for that, but I don't find it very persuasive. Um, it's clear from some of the correspondence with uh, some of the pilgrims who remain in Holland, in particular their pastor, John Robinson, that uh, they expect that there may be a period of time when just because of practical logistical ob- obstacles, there will not be uh, a representative of royal authority in the colony. And so for a period of time, they may have to find a way to uh, practice self-government, but not that that's going to be a permanent part of the life of Plymouth. It's not something that is important to them uh, to establish. It's a kind of temporary expedient. Um, and, and so I just I think we make way too much of the Mayflower Compact from a from a latter-day perspective and see it as foreshadowing things that would come later that weren't remotely uh, on the radar screen for the pilgrims in 1620. Yeah, I mean, first of all, in terms of influence, I think we can seriously question whether anyone at the um, Second Continental Congress, including John Adams, uh, really had read the Mayflower Compact. Um, I that, think you're exactly right. On that, that would be, I would almost be, uh, given, we're about to get to the evidence um, of, the, of the entire pilgrims, and it would be really... Uh, shocking, almost, if he had. Or, and I would want to know, like, where did he find it? Um, and is, is the copy still buried in, the, like, the wrong folder in the uh, in the Widener Library at Harvard? Um, the uh, other thing, but the one thing I'll say is that when you read it, um, you hear you see a bunch of normal people in the 1620s um, who haven't read Hobbes uh, because he's only uh, 32 years old and hasn't written Leviathan. But they know everything about social contract theory. I mean, they're mm-hmm. they're doing it for themselves. It's, it mm-hmm. seems to me an incredible document in that way. Yeah. Yes, I, I agree. I, I agree uh, uh, about that. I just I'm not sure. I don't know if I want to call that accidental or not. But it, I, there's just no evidence going forward. No. Uh, that the Pilgrims really had that kind of a vision for. Uh, a popular role in self-government. Yeah, the um, I, you know, I think it's easier to to put it in with one of um, hundreds, maybe thousands, of New England 
town documents and township documents and county documents and things of that nature. Um, just a suggestion. Yeah. Um, so let's get what they they reach their first. When do they arrive? Uh, what time of the year? So they, they uh, site land in uh, November of 1620, and they're going to actually choose a location to settle just before Christmas uh, in 1620. So not the best time of the year to arrive. It <laughs> yeah, must, be, point, must be pointed yeah. out. Um, and then what happens that first winter and spring? Well, so they they uh, basically uh, b- begin to try to create a settlement uh, just before Christmas Day. The location that they choose um, is propitious in a certain respect in that um, much of the land is already cleared. They actually are going to settle on a, a tract that had been part of a Native American settlement for quite some time, but had been uh, dramatically depopulated because of ec- epidemic, probably viral hepatitis, but historians aren't absolutely certain about that. Really? Viral hepatitis? Jeez, I was but, wow. Uh, yeah, but uh, when that occurred, almost certainly sometime between about the early 16-teens and the end of that decade. So it was a fairly recent uh, development. So it's largely depopulated. It is cleared. Uh, in that respect, it's going to save uh, the pilgrims a great deal of incredible labor. Um, there are other things about it not attractive. The, the harbor there at Plymouth actually is not very um, uh, good uh, in the sense that it's very shallow. It, it um, declines uh, very gradually. Uh, and even the Mayflower, which is not a very large ship, is going to have to um, uh, drop anchor maybe a half a mile uh, yeah. from the shore, which means that for much of that winter of 1620-1621, the pilgrims, as they're coming ashore to labor, they're going to they're going to live on the boat initially, uh, and they're going to uh, come in to labor uh, and literally wade uh, every morning in those uh, December and January waters uh, of um, uh, Massachusetts. And uh, I'm firmly convinced that that is the most important single contributing factor to the devastating deaths that occur. Mm -hmm. Uh, By March, um, 52 of the 102 original passengers of Mayflower are dead. (laughs) Uh, And uh, William Bradford, years after, when he is collecting his thoughts and his notes for his history of um, the colony, uh, will make a listing of what he calls birthing and deceasing. And uh, by every name of a deceased passenger, he, he writes some commentary on the cause. And the most common commentary uh, by the name of a, a dead uh, passenger was died shortly after coming ashore. Huh. So I think a lot of them are, are simply dying from exposure, probably bringing on pneumonia. Mm-hmm. It's not the case that they're uh, short of food at this time, mm-hmm. and there's no particular evidence of some sort of epidemic. It's, uh, it's probably exposure more than any other single. Just, just hypothermia. Yeah. Oh. Hmm. Yeah. And it, it should be emphasized again in case uh, they had missed it. This is uh, what's always fascinating with the uh, pilgrims of, or the separatists in this case is the they're like a commune. I mean, they're an intimate group of people from the same church in the north of England, as you said earlier. Uh, they, they are. They've, yeah, been, what, they've been in Holland together. And so he's lost. They've, not only have they had 50 percent fatalities, but they've lost 50 percent of a very intimate group of people. Yeah. Yes. And one, one of the things that I think is so um compelling to the story uh, is that um, as the congregation in Leiden was considering this venture, um, the pilgrim writings do make clear that there's a significant disagreement, not in the sense of breaking fellowship, but a significant disagreement as whether this was a wise step to take. Uh, And in the end, uh, the congregation there may have grown as large as four to five hundred. So we're talking about a small subset that makes this initial venture, and some were we're going to follow, but probably some we're, we're, we're never going to. And so we know that this is a somewhat controversial decision. And then we see the pilgrims who take this step, uh, and one of the first things that happens is half of the number uh, is depleted in a few months. And so you know that had to be a haunting sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, there were individuals uh, before the fact saying that the, the risks involved in this are enormous and the cost is likely to be great, and that turned out to be exactly exactly the case. Let's step back uh, just a moment before we get to the the event that we're all waiting for. Um, what is the evidence for the what for the history that you've just been recounting? Uh, great question. There's a, a few key sources that historians would rely on for this early part of the uh, Pilgrim Colony uh, history. Um, the most uh, significant source is the history that it's written by the longtime 
Plymouth uh, Colony Governor William Bradford. Bradford is in his early 30s uh, when they make that initial uh, voyage, uh, and within a year is the um, governor of the colony. He will be the governor of the colony for most of the rest of his life uh, for more than 30 years or so. Uh, he begins a history of the Plymouth Colony about 10 years after their um, settlement there, and he works on it um, over the course of, of more than two decades. So it's a very long project for him, and it's quite detailed. Uh, that's where any history of the colony has to begin. We have a portion of his letter book, which was basically um, his effort to create official copies of his official correspondence as governor. And we have that for a number of years, but not nearly for the, the stretch that we'd like to have. Could, could uh, and then there were a couple of pamphlets uh, could, that are very key. Could you describe um, sort of the what uh, recept? I was going to say the reception history, or I, I should say, what happened to his history. I mean, it wasn't published. Um, the history the, is not the, published. The letter yeah. book wasn't published, so N- they, neither they, of those are. And the story is rather re- remarkable. Both of yeah, them uh, undergo. Um, um, sort of extraordinary journeys that we do not fully uh, understand. Um, the, the, the letter book or a portion of the letter book turns up in the 1790s, so we're talking about more than a century and a half later, in Halifax, Nova Scotia, uh, where a local um, sort of antiquarian is actually literally purchasing uh, groceries in a market and discovers that there is a uh, grocer there that is wrapping groceries with the leaves of um, uh, Governor Bradford's letter book. That's just, uh, incredible. And this, That's just incredible. Doesn't that make you sick to your stomach? I mean, it just, oh, well, it, oh, it, it does. It's, I want it's to throw remarkable. Up. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, he's able to to salvage several years of that letter book. The um, the history. It's clear that Bradford wrote the history uh, eventually to to be distributed uh, to to be shared uh, openly, but he never does during his lifetime, uh, and it is simply passed down. Uh, through his line of descendants, at some point, and this is all more or less educated guesswork, but at some point it's probably loaned out to uh, individuals uh, who are interested in New England history, uh, and at some point uh, probably uh, confiscated by uh, British troops during the American Revolution. That's all a little bit uh, guesswork. What we do know is that it turns up in the 1850s, believe it or not, so we're talking about more than two centuries later, uh, in the library of the Bishop of London. Uh, And when it's discovered, um, uh, there is an effort to to publicize the fact uh, uh, to the United States. There are negotiations between various figures on both sides of the Atlantic, and it's finally brought back um, to the United States after the Civil War. So it's not published uh, in the American setting and, you know, for more than two centuries after the fact. So there really is no way that uh, John Adams could have uh, known about the Mayflower Company. Well, you know, there's there's local lore, yeah, right? And, yeah. and and some of the uh, of the records of the Plymouth Colony are put into the minutes of the first church, the the what would be called later the Congregational Church of of Plymouth. And so a little bit of this uh, is in the local church records, but much of it would not have been available for a couple of centuries. So I like to tell my students, if, if we make a distinction between the past, which is everything that has uh, been thought, said, and done, and so on, and history, which is our memory of the past, mm-hmm. then there's a sense in which, the, particularly the first Thanksgiving, we're talking about that, doesn't become a part of history until the middle of the 19th century. Yes, that, that's exactly where I wanted to go, uh, more or less. Uh, it's, it, there, this, that story is wonderful as an example of how, um, how shall I say, ephemeral evidence is and what strange uh, paths evidence seems to take before it gets in front of a historian. And uh, when you say that we're by Niagara with a Dixie cup, uh, we miss a lot of Niagara. And uh, the Dixie cups, they take rather, have rather strange journeys themselves. Um, what uh, what does that story tell you about evidence and and sort of the um, the activity of sourcing? Yeah, it's it's a it's a great question. A couple of things come to my mind. Um, one is a little bit more of a sort of meditation on the on the human condition. But I I just I love for my students to feel the weight 
of of this story. But what I mean by that is how sort of extraordinary it is that we have been able to recapture any significant aspect of the experience of these individuals. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I, I always uh, I go back. It's one of uh, Abraham Lincoln's favorite poems, but he, he loves uh, Elegy in a Country Churchyard by yeah. Thomas Gray. And I just always think about that, where Gray's talking about these simple people in a small hamlet and the markers that he observes give the, their names and their years and, and very little else, right? This is the annals of the of the poor. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and that's what we're seeing here is... is uh, Common people whose lives would not be remembered at all uh, by us today, except for these extraordinary and rare artifacts that allow us in the briefest of ways to sort of pull back the curtain and to gain glimpses into their lives. Um, I I, I really encourage my students when we look at this group or any other sort of, uh, of, of, of common human beings uh, to realize how precious any kind of insight we have in our lives truly is. Yeah. Not to be uh, taken for granted. The, I love that part where you were discussing this in the book, and it made me think of the um, all the Shakespeare conspiracists uh, who insist mm. that he must be someone else because, you know, we know nothing about him. Mm-hmm. And the fact is, well, he's just a regular, a very common Englishman of the, if we, mm-hmm. uh, and we have much better records of his life than, just about anyone else of his class or origins mm-hmm. or history. Uh, people, mm-hmm. people always don't uh, appreciate how ephemeral the historical record actually is. Mm-hmm. Um, let's go on to, you have two great phrases. You use them as chapter titles, uh, rhinos, not unicorns, and discarding false memories. Uh, we'll get to that in a second. Why don't you describe the first Thanksgiving as it actually was in, in your reconstruction, and then we'll go on to the, those phrases and, and what they mean. Sure. Well, uh, I think uh, full disclosure here requires that that I say that um, in, in characterizing the first Thanksgiving, it, it's still to some degree educated guesswork. And why is that? Uh, it's um, it's, it's, it's an memory. Question. Yeah, it's an evidence question. It's memory. It's constrained by the evidence that we have, but the evidence that we have is not nearly as much as we would like to have, <laughs> which means there's an awful lot of sort of imaginative filling in gaps. In fact, right? the, the evidence that we have amounts to do you recall how many words? 115 words, <laughs> that's what I always say. Uh, the, the only uh, firsthand account that we have of the event that we remember as the first Thanksgiving uh, is buried in a much longer letter that is written by one of the adult pilgrims, a man named Edward Winslow. He's writing a letter back probably to uh, some of their financial supporters in London, although it's not entirely clear. That letter gets included in a pamphlet, which is published in 1622 uh, in England, that uh, uh, deals with the early uh, venture uh, at at Plymouth. Uh, 115 um, words, five sentences, and uh, leaves out almost everything that we want to know. It actually doesn't tell us exactly when uh, the event took place. It says relatively little about what was on the menu. Uh, it is ambiguous, at least, in the way it explains the presence of the Wampanoag, the Native American people nearby. There's so You can make a long list of what we wish this letter told us clearly that it doesn't. And almost nothing in our image of Thanksgiving is in that 115 words. That's exactly right. I mean, one of the things that comes out later in the book is that most of the images that we have, uh, at least in uh, popular culture's recreation of the event, uh, date much more to the late 19th century than they do uh, to the and, period uh, early 17th. And to a group of, I must say, um, they're being deceased and the chances of their descendants not being very angry about this, a bunch of shameless writers. I mean, absolutely <laughs> shameless, uh, both both as fiction as, as writers of fiction and history. It's really quite incredible. Um, well, there's certainly a lot of invention. Yes, there's no doubt yeah, about that. Absolutely. They're creative people. So... In your reconstruction, in your retelling of it, how would you tell the sort of the the actual? Fair enough. So yeah. just sort of bottom line, if we're wanting an analogy or at the outset, uh, think Fourth of July more than think uh, our traditional Thanksgiving. That is to say, it's a communal event. It's not a domestic private event. It's a very public community event. It's outdoors. Uh, most everyone is sitting on the ground. They're eating with their hands. Um, it's um, in that respect just evokes Fourth of July uh, picnics to me much more than 
the long flowing tables with the elaborate uh, feast. Um, if you, everyone always wants to know about the menu. I think that's funny. Anytime I talk about it, that's what people want to know about most. But um, heavy on meat, uh, light on all other kinds of food, basically. Uh, there are documents, there are at least two documents that talk about the prevalence of fowl uh, at this time, um, and we have to sort of infer, but it's almost certainly waterfowl, uh, because there are other uh, references to just vast uh, flocks of geese, of herons, of cranes, of swans, of ducks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so lots of waterfowl. Uh, Edward Winslow does explicitly say that the Wampanoag uh, provided deer, so there was uh, venison. Uh, but a lot of the things that we take for granted we know couldn't have been there. There's no pumpkin pie because they don't have ovens yet. We know that. Uh, probably not cranberry sauce because they don't have sugar. If they did have cranberry sauce, it would be a little more tart than, than we would uh, prefer. Um, the, the pilgrims talked a lot about what they called salad herbs, which is what they're growing in their gardens. So they would have had probably carrots, parsnips, turnips, uh, cabbages, uh, that sort of thing. Um, but um, a lot of a lot of meat, not much vegetables, uh, a lot of eating with your hands, uh, and uh, and no no obvious indication that this was thought of as a religious celebration. And the um, and no doubt being English, uh, based on later New England and Virginia accounts, they were probably whining that they had no beef. That, uh, th- that they had no beef. Beef. Yeah. Uh, that could well be. I thought you were going to say for a minute beer, which is the other thing that they also, really enjoyed a great yes. deal. Yeah, beef and beer. It's amazing. <laughs> the uh, I think John Winthrop complains that all they have to eat is like oysters and lobsters and salmon and That's something that the pilgrims will say as well. Yeah. At particular points in time when they're uh, most... Um, the larder is, is least full, they're often living entirely off of shellfish and what they can bring out of the bay. Yeah. Um, what were they wearing? Those strange black hats with a buckle? <laughs> Again, it's hard to know for sure, except it's pretty clear. Uh, historians, I think, have established pretty clearly that those um, uh, very idealized stereotypes we have, <laughs> the big tall hats and buckles on every uh, imaginable uh, area, um, yeah. th- those are creations of the late 19th century. Um, we, we know from some of the records from the pilgrims who do survive to, to old age, uh, Plymouth records are amazing in part because Plymouth has loomed so large in American mythology. There's been really important efforts to sustain those town records. And so we have wills. Uh, when individuals are dying, they're creating a record of all of uh, their worldly possessions. Uh, and in that day, one's clothing is often one of the most valuable items that you have uh, to bequeath. So we have pretty detailed lists of the clothing that individuals uh, are uh, owning when they die. And William Bradford, for example, he has a red vest, he has a purple cape, he has uh, various colored... No, um, he can't. He's a Puritan. Uh, they don't yeah, wear colors. <laughs> Bottom line is, uh, we, we think now that um, while black, which was sometimes called a sad yeah. a sad suit in, in, the, in the records, meaning some dark, uh, somber color, uh, that that might have been, you know, for certain uh, occasions. But generally, they're, they're wearing all kinds of bright colors um, lots of reds and greens and, and whites yeah. uh, and golds and so forth. So, yeah, the, the dark um, uh, suits are, are really, a, a, again, a kind of later invention. So you've just been engaging Dr. McKenzie in a blatant and offensive act of revisionism. <laughs> Defend yourself. Yeah, I, I I knew even when you said blatant and offensive, I knew we were headed toward revisionism. That's right, right. <laughs> because revisionist uh, history is by definition uh, offensive, right? Offensive, yes. Um, one of the things that I I just try to to demonstrate in, in the book is that memory of the first Thanksgiving has constantly been evolving, uh, and that revisionism is really as old as historical memory generally. Uh, and in fact, we would say as a historian, if in revising an earlier interpretation, we are in fact uh, crafting something that is truer to the evidence that survives, then in that respect, revisionism is a, is a, is a virtue, right? right. Um, and so um, uh, I just want my students to see that revisionism is, is not intrinsically either 
uh, an immoral or a righteous kind of act, Mm -hmm. that it's what historians are doing, uh, almost uh, by definition. And as you point out, uh, revisionism basically is how you describe someone you don't like. Well, exactly. I mean, so we use it now. It's it's sort of the six shooter on our hip that we pull the first time six we hear shooter. something we dislike. Yeah, uh, bigger than uh, that, and, I think. But, uh, <laughs> well, fair enough. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I I say in the book, it's almost like in the in the old west when someone calls <laughs> a revisionist, you want to wonder if it has to lead to a duel because we, we the revisionism is is always something that the other guy does. It's always yeah. something that that our um, ideological opponents are doing. Uh, to distort the historical reality to further their own agenda. And it's just never, ever, ever that simple. No. The, um, we, we get to the question then, um, where did all this stuff come from? And it, it's always, uh, it, it, it's to me as an early American historian, it's always amusing that we even know who the pilgrims are. In many ways, Plymouth Colony um well, it's kind of a failure. Well, not a failure. It limps along. It's, it exists for a long time before it gets swallowed up by Massachusetts. But it's just not as significant as what happens 30 miles, 40 miles to the north. Yeah. Uh, how did the pilgrims become so important? And how did Thanksgiving be, have become this special event in the American imagination? Right. That's, that's, a, that's a good question. I, I think it, it, the answer is complicated. It and, is. And... Um, I'll just throw out a, a few thoughts here. First of all, there there's going to be memory of, um, or, or let me put it this way, there's going to be a Thanksgiving tradition developed in New England um, beginning by the, the middle of the 17th century and, and becoming very popular and deeply entrenched in popular culture in New England by about the 1820s. And it's really uh, in that last generation before the Civil War and throughout the rest of the 19th century that an annual autumn Thanksgiving begins to spread across the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, even as late as the Civil War, I think you would say, if you were going to generalize broadly, that Thanksgiving was the holiday of New England. Christmas was the holiday of uh, the southern states. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and the reality is, uh, you know, the, the pilgrims did not celebrate Christmas. That's something that right. William Bradford makes very clear. They saw that as a, a kind of popish invention. The scripture never says when Jesus was born, and it doesn't say we're supposed to create a holy day uh, for that. So it, it, it takes time for that holiday uh, to, to spread, and it is something that's largely a late 19th century phenomenon. I mentioned in the book, and I don't want to take this too far, but I actually do believe that part of the story, believe it or not, part of the explanation of the popularity of Thanksgiving is that it begins to be associated with football. Yeah, that's uh, the, a great. Go on with that because I love well, that. Well, the, the the you know the the forerunner of the NCAA is actually established right about the end of Reconstruction, and as early as 1876, there is a quote national championship game uh, that takes place on Thanksgiving Day. Just amazing. Uh, I think it's that early. Uh, it is. I mean, yeah. no one remembers it that way, but the uh, the close association between Thanksgiving holiday and football is a lot older than. Yeah. Uh, than we remember. Yeah. And so by the 1890s, there, there are uh, editorials in, in various popular uh, magazines and newspapers sort of bemoaning that now Thanksgiving is a little more than an opportunity uh, for the state to grant holidays so everybody can watch a football game. It, it's uh, actually, so, just to, uh, to interject, it's, the, um, it's amazing to me, actually, in, say, California in the 1890s, you quote all the various other things that happened. Uh, it, it, more than football, it was quite a day of, of all sorts of different festivities. Absolutely. There, there are football games, there are baseball matches, if there are areas where that's possible, warm enough. Yeah. There are road races uh, later on, particularly in the early 20th century, begins to be automobile races are very common Balls, dances. Uh, on um, on Thanksgiving. So it's it's very much a uh, an occasion for these kinds of public spectacles. Mm-hmm. With the um, but to back up to the uh, 1840s, uh, there's a reason why you, as a sort of Civil War mid 19th century historian, should be interested in the memory of Thanksgiving. Well, the the connection that I, I'm I'm thinking you're probably um, have in mind is is that uh, it's during the Civil War era that we begin to see a kind of national endorsement of Thanksgiving as a national holiday. Yeah, uh, there there is lobbying for this that uh, is undertaken from a variety of corners. Uh, the individual we remember tend to remember the most is. Uh, um, woman from New England named Sarah Hale, who's the editor of a prominent uh, women's magazine, 
and she is lobbying various public figures to make Thanksgiving uh, a holiday. And she's saying very explicitly, uh, the women of America need a holiday. Right. There are really only two national holidays at the time. There's the 4th of July, and there's George Washington's birthday. Mm-hmm. And she says, we need to add Thanksgiving uh, for the women of, a, of America. When Abraham Lincoln becomes president, she's regularly um, writing to him. Uh, and ultimately, right. Lincoln will, in 1863, uh, issue a national proclamation. Lincoln, actually, if I could back up, he issues a number of proclamations of National Days of Thanksgiving that have nothing to do with the harvest, nothing to do with autumn. They're all driven simply by a particular developments in the, the theater of war. Right. Uh, and so he issues many Thanksgiving proclamations. But in November or the fall of 1863, he calls for a National Day of Thanksgiving in uh, in the last um, last week of the month. And... Although it wouldn't have been known at the time, from hindsight, we can see that that began a string of, um, of similar presidential proclamations so that uh, there was an unbroken uh, continuity uh, going forward. It's not until the uh, 20th century that Congress declares this officially uh, a national holiday, but every president after Lincoln was doing that. I, I guess we should back year. up just a little bit, and you make it quite clear that a Thanksgiving celebration in England was very, very different from what we're talking about now, the the football and uh, the 1876 and the road races. and the, Right. What well, was it, a Thanksgiving? The, these two became merged. The name became overlaid on something else. Yeah. What there's, was there's, that, 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 again, the story is, is, is really very complicated. Yeah. What we remember is the first Thanksgiving of uh, late 1621, I would argue the book is actually not something that the pilgrims themselves would have called a Thanksgiving. Uh, They do believe in certain irregular holy days as being scripturally justifiable, occasional um, days of humiliation and fasting, occasional days of Thanksgiving. As long as they're Uh, not part of a church year or liturgical. That's right. They they weren't supposed to be part of a church calendar. It was presumptuous, they would have said to uh, put these on the calendar a year in advance. But when God acts in some way either to bring judgment or blessing, it's entirely appropriate to declare a special day to uh, respond to that. But a day of humiliation and fasting or a day of thanksgiving, either one of those, were first and foremost religious uh, events. Uh, They were quite solemn. And even some of the contemporaries would say sometimes it was hard to distinguish between the day of humiliation and the day of Thanksgiving, <laughs> uh, except that there would have been a meal uh, in the latter um, that was lacking in the first. But both of them are really centered around church attendance and long, from our perspective, very long church services. Like so how that, long? Well, it could be, it, it depends, but we're talking four to eight hours. Yeah, that's pretty long. Probably. Yeah. yeah. So, so that would have been the standard in the, in the 17th century. Yeah. Uh, clearly, by the 19th century, when the Association of Thanksgiving brings to mind uh, football games and uh, bicycle races and so forth, we've gone a long ways away. And so one of the things I just think it's good to know is that the secularization, if you want to think of it that way, the secularization of, of Thanksgiving is a very long history, and it starts way before uh, the Beatles come to America or whatever it is. And um, uh, certainly, I, I've included in the in the book all kinds of editorials, even by the time of the Civil War, that basically says Thanksgiving as a holy day just doesn't exist anymore. It's it's not taken mm-hmm. seriously in that way. It, it seems to me that there's um, there's a link here to also to um, a Unitarian quest, a New England Unitarian quest. And I might be off base here, but a New England Unitarian quest for a um, not a usable past, but perhaps a preferable past. Um, the pilgrims just seem to be nicer and more genial people than, say, the than the Puritans who land at Massachusetts yeah. Bay. Yeah, there's a weird way in which they become. Uh, everyone traces their lineage back to the Mayflower rather than to the First Fleet, um, which right. is much more substantial and uh, epic, uh, epic, uh, epical change in yeah. uh, New England. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's true, and I um, I try to stay away from some of these. Um, debates about whether we should think of the pilgrims as, as uh, a subset of Puritans or a wholly different uh, group. But I tend to believe that the determination to present them as a wholly different group is exactly what you are saying, which is trying to distance, uh, to, to find some tradition in New England that could be distanced from the 
the Puritan. Right. Because certainly by the late 19th century on into the early 20th century, most of the popular connotations with the Puritans are very negative. Yeah, these, these are dour, uh, puritanical, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, repressive, so narrow, bigoted individuals. And and so the portrayal of the pilgrims is going to be the pilgrims who are much less uh, rigid yeah. in their beliefs, much more able to get along with the that, that, uh, Native that, American peoples and so on. They're the kind of people you want to share Thanksgiving dinner with. Yes, yes. Um, the other aspect of this, I think, is as we are in, in the 18... Well, the, the big work on that popularizes the pilgrims and Thanksgiving is what, 1840, 1841? There is a uh, collection, it's like the, called the Chronicles of the Pilgrim Fathers, which is published by a New England minister in 1841. So it seems... To, and, and when is Plymouth Rock dedicated? Um, <laughs> right, right around the same time, the, isn't it? The fir- well, uh, the first reference to, Pil- uh, to Plymouth Rock... Uh, as far as we know, is not until 1741, so 120 years, yeah. 21 years after the landing. It actually becomes sort of a, a phenomenon in popular awareness around the time of the American uh, Revolution. Uh, in fact, the people of Plymouth try literally try to drag this incredibly <laughs> massive, uh, not huge, but incredibly heavy uh, boulder to the town common yeah. uh, from the beach as a kind of symbolic statement of, uh, of a new beginning. And break uh, so and, and it breaks, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which don't want to think about the uh, um, omen there too much. Yeah. But um, yeah, so Plymouth Rock comes comes later. What really popularizes uh, Thanksgiving widely in American culture is not this uh, collection from this Unitarian minister who basically is just reproducing, say, the letter of Edward Winslow and other documents, but is a novel by a uh, New England housewife, a fifty-eight-year-old. Uh, writer uh, in the late 1880s, uh, a woman uh, named Jane Austen, which I always <laughs> have to tell folks is not the Jane Austen of Pride and Prejudice and so forth. She spells her last name differently. She's not the English writer. She's a Massachusetts novelist. And she writes a book called uh, Standish of Standish, yeah. which comes out in 1889. It's just this really pretty awful uh, romantic um, romance set against the backdrop of a very shaky, uh, historically inaccurate uh, past. So it must have sold very well. It did fantastically. <laughs> That's exactly right. And it, what, don't you think also that there's a way in which this, uh, prior to the Civil War and after it, uh, you make it clear that Southerners had no truck with Thanksgiving. It was a Yankee mm-hmm. holiday. Um, mm-hmm. Don't you think this is a way of also supplanting Jamestown as the first um, settlement in America? It's always extraordinary to me how many of my undergraduates, I don't know about yours, really do believe the Pilgrims were the first Americans, uh, uh, English settlers in North America. Um, and I know bitter Virginians who have always said, if we, don't, <laughs> if we only had a rock at, at Jamestown yeah. uh, or something like yeah. that, we could, then we could prove we were first. You know, or... Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a good point. There's a, a wonderful uh, book um, called The Pilgrims and Pocahontas, which yeah. sort of explores those two um, origin stories, if you want to think of it yeah, that way. Are. Where where are the founding? Yeah. Where did the founding occur? And um, uh, there is a sense in which those are competing stories about the founding of America, and it is and after the Civil War that the uh, the Virginia sort of claimed preeminence uh, is a casualty. Yeah, you can see that. What's the Henry Adams joshing back and forth in 1862 with some... Virginia friend of his from Harvard and saying, well, Pocahontas doesn't really exist. You know, that <laughs> John Smith, Denver was really in danger and, and so on. That was, that was really below the belt for the Virginian. Uh, <laughs> well, in our, as we wrap things up, um, Tracy, uh, what do you think is the most, uh, what are a few more things that uh, we can learn about historical thinking uh, from thinking about Thanksgiving? Well, I, I like to think there's quite a few things. One of the things that comes to, to mind is, um, you know, one of the things I try to do in the book is just to document in a fairly quick way uh, how our memory of the event has evolved um, since about the middle of the 19th century. And I think it's just good for us to um, remember that this process of revision happens sort of organically. It happens very naturally uh, as we're constantly sort of refitting the details of our past into the, the narrative of our, uh, of our lives uh, collectively and individually. Um, and uh, that's, that's a natural process. 
but one of the things I'd like to stress in the book is that it's a process that does come with a with a cost. Uh, because I'm I'm firmly convinced that one of the great advantages of studying the past is it gives us a um, a different way to think about the present. It, it helps us at least potentially. Uh, to see the present with new eyes, or as sometimes historians like to say, to make the present strange to us. Yeah, uh, We see it as new. It hasn't always been that way. It didn't have to develop the way that it did. And we think about it more deeply. But naturally, if we're not very, very vigilant, naturally we're constantly sort of recreating the past in the image of the present, mm-hmm. which means that that power of the past to, to challenge us, uh, to sort of jolt us out of our complacency, to get us to look at our surroundings uh, a little bit more critically, that's constantly in jeopardy of being uh, lost. Yeah, I guess that's the danger of that phrase, usable past, which I've always felt kind of uneasy about. Yes, yes. And, and, and believe me, I absolutely think that there is every kind of practical advantage to studying the past. But when people talk about a usable past, they almost always mean what I call history is ammunition, which mm-hmm. is just to, to find in the past uh, whatever supports the, the contemporary agenda. And, and makes me feel very good about myself. <laughs> yes, right. always, yes. Uh, it's the uh, Butterfield's um, criticism of the Whig interpretation of history. Uh, yeah. And we do that in more things than politics. Um, how in the world did history work out to create such a wonderful person as myself? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Tracy McKenzie, um, it's been fantastic to have you with us on Historically Thinking. Um, I learned a lot, and I hope everyone else did as well. Well, thank you, Al. It's been a pleasure talking with you. For more historical thinking, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can comment on today's program and find show notes, links, and readings related to today's conversation. Historically Thinking is recorded in the studio of WAUG, the student radio station of Augustana College. Our program's editor is John Ruddat. Beth Leinbach keeps the schedules in sync. Matt Lehas keeps WAUG studio running. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.